صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and thanks for joining us in almost COVID-free, well, we believe COVID-free, Victoria. We're getting to live our best lives again. To all our listeners all over the world, we can only wish that uh, you can enjoy what we're having now. Our thoughts remain with our family, brethren, our brothers and sisters in Gaza who are struggling through the worst of COVID on earth. The WHO finally uh, organized some COVID tests to get to Gaza the numbers there are staggering in excess of 35% of all tests are coming back positive this is against international numbers that are in the in the single figures of all tests so that can only tell you how bad things are there so our hopes and prayers are with everyone in Gaza particularly as we enter the winter there coming into the holiday season for the rest of us in the west so our thoughts and prayers are with you all this past week saw the 33rd anniversary of the first intifada. I remember that clearly. I was 17 years old. And this was the first time that Palestine was screened onto the TV stations of the West in something of a sympathetic mind or a sympathetic view of you all. It had been the first time that we had been portrayed as the David in the David and Goliath. Israel had been exposed or was exposed for the brutal, occupying, tyrannical power that it was is and continues to be. It's also a week where our federal parliament commemorated the death of Yitzhak Rabin, a prime minister of Israel who was assassinated by a right-wing Israeli fanatic who wasn't happy with the sort of peace that Yitzhak Rabin was trying to propose for the Palestinians. And, you know, a stateless is what he said where he would give to the Palestinians. We remember Rabin for his breaking the bones policy for his brutal determination to crush the Palestinian resistance. He testified in Parliament that, to the best of my memory, I never once said anything or anywhere that bones should be broken. In fact, what he'd been exposed to because there was such a high civilian casualty rate is endeavouring to downplay that Western media coverage that was really destroying that David and Goliath myth that had been perpetuated since that plucky state was formed in 1948. He said, let's take to the trenches, let's break the arms and legs of the Palestinians. Let's find a way to dissuade them from attending protests. And these images, and in particular, there's an image of a video. I'll put that in the podcast. You'll see that link there of these soldiers picking up great big pieces of rock and another soldier holding a, a, a Palestinian young man's arm straight and locked behind his body and throwing that rock and breaking his arm backwards. I mean, the sheer brutality of a human being doing that to another human being, but remembering 
that this was state-sanctioned from the very top. This guy ended up being the Prime Minister of the State of Israel, assassinated by a, a, an even more fanatical Israeli that wasn't happy that this guy that was breaking the arms of protesters was somehow going to create some sort of peace for Palestine. So we need to go back to 1987 and to why and how this first intifada came out. Now we need to go back and remember that 1987 is 20 years after the occupation of the rest of historic Palestine. We're talking about the June 1967 Six-Day War when Israel conquered the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, the Sinai and the Golan Heights. Israel still continues to occupy Gaza, East Jerusalem, West Bank and the Golan Heights, but has given Sinai back to Egypt in a peace deal in the early 70s. In 1967, Israel set up military administrations in the occupied territories and decided to unilaterally annex East Jerusalem into the uh, into Jerusalem and create a unified and indivisible city, declared as the capital of Israel, which nobody's recognized until our dear friend Donald Trump uh, decided to recognize it as the capital of state of Israel. Not to be outdone, Deputy ScoMo, Scotty from Marketing, quickly jumped on the bandwagon, lost the Wentworth uh, by-election, and then we haven't heard much about it since. So straight after 1967, after the occupation, the Israelis started their settlement enterprise. In December of 1987, there was about 2,000 Jewish settlers living in Gaza. Remembering this is 365 square kilometers today, 2 million people living in there, the most densely populated place on earth. At the time, the Palestinians were about 700,000. 2,000 armed Jewish settlers took over 40% of Gaza. So those remaining 700,000 impoverished Palestinians were crowded into about 60% of the tiny uh, Gaza Strip. In December of 1987, there was a, a lot of despair. The Palestinians were abandoned. You know, we're still abandoned, but th there was a real feeling of abandonment and frustration. It's always a powder keg in Palestine. Only something has to, something small can trigger anything. The uprising, the Intifada, shaking off in Arabic, began a day after an Israeli army tank transporter crashed into a row of parked Palestinian cars. Now, these were Palestinians that were working inside of 48 Palestine or Israel at their checkpoint. There were hundreds of Palestinians returning from work, standing in lines at the checkpoints, the images we know all too well. They saw this truck drive straight into these parked cars. This is a huge Israeli army tank trotter, an armored car vehicle, instantly killing four Palestinians and injuring up to a dozen others. Thousands of people attended the funerals in the coming days, and those funerals quickly became demonstrations against the occupation, and they spread throughout Palestine. Now, what was unique about these demonstrations is that they were organic. There was no organization. It wasn't the PLO. It wasn't... Hamas, it wasn't anybody. This was just an organic display of human frustration in, in the world and what the Palestinians' world looked like. And it took a number of different tactics. And these are historic Palestinian tactics that have been used against the British mandate in the 30s right through to today with the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign. Things like the youths took control of neighborhoods. They closed camps with barricades and stones. They're burning tire, uh, tires. They, they would throw uh, petrol bombs at the soldiers, Palestinian shopkeepers, they closed businesses, laborers refused to turn up for work in Israel. And Israel, of course, needed to quickly turn these things into illegal actions. 
and they call deem these activities riots and so they justify the repression using you know the whole western ideology of law and order you know we need to control the rabble within days the entire occupied territories was engulfed in a, in a wave of demonstrations commercial strikes on an unprecedented scale remembering there was no organizing body no head honcho if you will directing these activities they were small little pockets they were led by the youth by women by business leaders so there was nothing specific for the occupation forces for the israeli occupation forces to target like there was nobody they could take out and this really threw them they weren't used to dealing with this sort of stuff you know they could deal with an armed uh, infiltration they could you know have a turkey shoot in lebanon or jordan but you know the pol- even the police in in the west one of the great fears is they know how to deal with a 10,000 person demonstration but they don't know how to deal with 10 1,000 people demonstrations in 10 different areas and this was a real challenge to the occupation forces and what was really really smart about what the Palestinians did at that time was none of the dozen or so Israeli settlements were attacked there were no Israeli fatalities from stone throwings or anything in this early period and tens of thousands of civilians women children they all got up and the israeli forces didn't know what to do they only had you know a hammer and so everything looked like a nail so they went about using their full panoply of you know crowd control measures whether it be sticks and tear gas and water cannons and rubber bullets live ammunition but none of it worked there was huge amount of momentum it just kept growing Soon it was wide. There was rock throwing, road biking. One of the most fantastic images of my youth was seeing the ingenuity of the Palestinians. You know, the, 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 the young kids bringing rocks to the front line to the older kids. Women standing side by side, throwing the rocks. You know, there was a, an iconic image of a Palestinian Christian woman coming from church in bright yellow shoes and a bright yellow scarf in her Sunday best gear, holding her shoes in her left hand while she was hurling a rock at a tank in her right hand. Within a number of only a few days, a dozen Palestinians had already been killed. 30 others had been injured. And this was only the beginning for the IDF. Losing the television war with such a high proportion of those who were killed with civilians and youth. Yitzhak Rabin, as we mentioned before, adopted the fallback policy. His fallback policy was called might, power and beatings. And so the Israeli forces used mass Palestinian arrest. They engaged in collective punishment. They shut down all the Palestinian universities in the West Bank, some of them for years. West Bank schools, some of them for years, uh, 12 months and onwards. There were over 1,600 curfews, town-wide curfews. Communities were cut off from supplies, water, electricity, fuel. At any time, thousands, up to 25,000 Palestinians would be confined to their homes 24 hours a day for days on end. Trees were uprooted from Palestinian farms. Agricultural produce was blocked from being sold. In the first year, over 1,000 Palestinians had their homes demolished On top of all of that, not only did the Palestinians have to deal with the occupation forces, the Israeli occupation forces, the settlers, the heavily armed settlers, they engaged in private attacks on the Palestinians. The Palestinians then decided to refuse to pay taxes. What then happened was the Israelis confiscated property licenses, they took their cars, heavy fines were put to people who were convicted of stone throwing. Israel threw everything they could to quell this Palestinian image. The thing that got out of hand for Israel was the images. 
The images were played all over the world. 60 Minutes in Australia for once showed the reality of what it was like to be a Palestinian. And the international community, the overwhelming majority of the human beings, started to see what we know. Israeli apartheid, Israeli brutality, the asymmetry of power between a nuclear-armed country and a civilian indigenous population struggling for their self-determination using rocks in order to win their independence. I don't think Israel's ever really recovered from that first shattering of the glass ceiling. The fact that the David-Goliath asymmetry had been flipped is something they never got over. To give you an order of the barbarity of this first intifada, the Swedish branch of Save the Children estimated that something like 30,000 children, these are boys and girls under 16, 30,000 children required medical treatment for their beatings in the first two years of the intifada. One third, 10,000 of those were under the age of 10. Not sure what's going through a military officer's head even if he or she is a conscript, when they're beating a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old. One of the tragedies of the first intifada was the assassination of Khalid Wazir Abu Jihad. April 16, 1988, he was the PLO's number two man, Abu Jihad, a dear friend of my late father's. He was assassinated in his home in Tunis at 1.30 in the morning. He was only 52 years of age. He was working on a memo to the leaders of the intifada had barely a chance to shoot one shot from his pistol when the assassination squad burst into his office. In front of his wife and his young son, he was shot at close range 70 times. There were 70 bullets in his body. The assassination was led by Ehud Barak, who would later become a future Prime Minister of the State of Israel. Abu Jihad was buried in Yarmouk in Damascus, and we've spoken about Yarmouk, that famous Palestinian refugee camp in Syria that was desecrated by Assad and his forces and by the Al-Qaeda forces. In July of 1988, Jordan's King Hussein, he renounced all administrative responsibility for the West Bank, therefore strengthening the Palestinians' claim and influence there. On November 15 of 1988, the PLO voted to proclaim the establishment of an independent state. During that time, the Intifada still continued to do. Over 300 Palestinians had been killed and something like 20,000 had been wounded and so many more had been arrested. Israel deployed close to 100,000 soldiers to quell this civil disturbance. By the end of the Intifada in 1993, close to 2,000 Palestinians and about 180 Israelis had been killed, and 120,000 Palestinians had been arrested. The hugely disproportionate violence provoked, as I said previously, such huge widespread international condemnation and elicited a couple of UN resolutions, which of course Israel ignored. The Intifada empowered and was recognized as an occasion where Palestinians acted together, cohesively and independently of their leadership, inverted comma. And without the assistance of any of the brother Arab states at that time, you know, the UAE hadn't yet normalized, nor Bahrain. This was a time when the Palestinians took responsibility and action themselves on the ground. It broke the image that Jerusalem was some sort of magical, unified city. What it also did was give President Arafat and his followers the, the confidence that they could moderate their political program and force an agenda or an opportunity for negotiation that you know filled many of us with such great hope. 
was in mid-November 1988 when President Arafat won a majority for his historic decision to recognize the State of Israel and to give it legitimacy on 78% of historic Palestine, to accept all the UN resolutions back to November 1947 and to adopt the principle of a two-state solution. Remembering until that point, the PLO's charter was a democratic state, a secular democratic state with freedom of religion and assembly for all. You know, an ideal and certainly what I believe is the future for the area. That led to Oslo and the famous handshaking on the Oslo, on the White House lawns. For Palestinian youth today, the first intifada means a lost chance, a lost opportunity. It's a testament though, they look at it as what could be, as a model of what could be, but also makes them so disappointed in the flawed leadership that exists today. There are lessons to be learned from the first intifada, not only of collective solidarity and, you know, the fact that we can mobilize across all fields. And this is what the First Intifada did, you know, fields like the arts and theater, agriculture, business, students, all got together and worked together. It was an inspiration of so many other indigenous struggles where grassroots efforts and, and, and communal work could actually arrest power and really throw things on the head. The resentment today amongst the youth towards that leadership is, is a sense of betrayal from, from that lost opportunity. And we're seeing just how bad things are for the Palestinians. What we'd hope is for the Middle East and the rest of the international community, they've just got to listen to Palestinian demands, work with them to bring a just solution to the region. The focus shouldn't be about Palestinian reaction to Israeli aggression, but rather on the roots of the reaction. Occupation is violence. There is a reason why Palestinians resist. What we need to do is support the Palestinians and help them find a way to reach equality and for the implementation of all of international law and humanitarian rights law, the full implementation of the right of return for all the refugees to go home to their ancestral homes, to the houses they have the keys for, for reparations. And together we can build a Palestine-Israel that is a, a beautiful vision of a decolonized country with, with the hopes and dreams of all, regardless of religion regardless of belief system, can live together in peace and prosperity and brotherhood and sisterhood. We can only dream of that day. I recently got sent an email by a dear listener, Adnan, who asked me if I'd heard of a Tunisian singer called Amal Al-Mathuthi. Now, she's a very famous Tunisian singer. She's sung at the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony in 2015. She's an amazing woman. Listen to this song called Nasi en Palestina. It's Spanish for I was born in Palestine. So she sings it in Spanish and in Arabic.
Wow. I'll put a link to that in the podcast. If you want to hear more, you can follow that there. This past week saw the resignation of an iconic Palestinian leader, Dr. Hanan Ashrawi. Dr. Samah Sabawi was interviewed on the ABC on this, and I'm going to play that interview for you now. ABC News. Well, the veteran Palestinian politician Hanan Ashrawi has resigned from the Palestine Liberation Organisation, the PLO. Mrs Ashrawi, the first woman to be elected to the PLO's most senior body, the Executive Committee, says the organisation needs to be reformed, calling for more young people, women and professionals. She rejected any suggestions or resignations due to poor health. But she leaves a significant legacy, having emerged as a key negotiator in the Middle East peace process back in the very early 1990s. Dr. Sama Sabawi is an Australian-Canadian playwright and author, originally from Palestine, now residing in Australia, and joins us now. Dr. Sabawi, thanks for your time today. Such a prominent figure, Hannah Nashrawi. Where would you start when trying to to sum up her legacy? Oh, my God, indeed. Where do we start? I think, look, for, for me personally and for generations of Palestinian girls who grew up with her voice, her eloquence on, on television, speaking about the Palestinian issues and the Palestinian rights, she was an empowering figure. She was an inspiring figure. The fact that she was one of the very few women and very few Christians to hold a senior post in the Palestinian leadership, to me, that was, that was something that, that was kind of reflecting who we want to be as a people, as Palestinians, what kind of a nation we want to have. And she set, uh, she set the tone on the discourse about Palestinian rights in the West. Uh, within the Western mainstream, she focused on uh, the rights of the Palestinian people beyond the political desperation and, and disparities and, and discourse that was going on. So she was able to uphold human rights above everything in, in her speaking and in her uh, actions. She supported nonviolent Palestinian resistance, and she did so completely uh, without any any kind of hypocrisy. She did not speak out of the two sides of her mouth like many other political leaders do. She was vocally critical of the Palestinian Authority, of the leadership, and more recently, specifically of Mahmoud Abbas's autocratic rule um, and his reliance on um, his inner circle of men who are in their 70s and in their 80s. So so all of that was good. The only The only question that I had for her this morning, and a lot of people had for her, uh, my generation, is what took you so long. She did wait it out for a very long time within a very corrupt leadership um, and within a very impossible box to break out of. The Oslo box should have been rejected by her years ago. And, uh, you know, so it really is a matter of what took you so long, but we're so happy that you're doing it now. All right. And how optimistic are you then that her parting words, that the organisation does need to be reformed and needs more young people, more women and professionals, what hope is there that that might occur, given the picture you've painted? Well, we have to have hope that this might occur. Otherwise, we don't we don't have a hope in the world of, of getting our rights and, and our liberation, something that, that every child in Palestine, security, every child in Palestine deserves. So I have hope. And it's not just her. She is She's a leading example of a very high-profile figure who who made that statement, but there are 
there is a lot of movement at the grassroots level now of Palestinians who are totally fed up uh, with the status quo and with the PA, specifically and with security coordination with Israel. They understand that the whole idea of continuing the path that we're on, um, allowing uh, our leadership to become nothing more than a proxy police for the occupying forces, fighting amongst ourselves instead of for crumbs of bread from international aid, instead of really focusing on liberation and on finding a peaceful way forward. And it does so come not long after the death of her longtime colleague Sarah Erekat as well, and uh, a challenging time for Palestinians given Israel and the US to a lesser extent doing deals with some former allies in the region. Has the job got even harder in recent times? It got harder, but in, in so many ways, um, we are at a point where major change is going to take place. So there is a seismic shift in the politics of uh, the Palestine-Israel reality. We know that a two-state solution, they can talk about it for, for the next 100 years, but we know and we knew yesterday and we knew 10 years ago and we actually knew 20 years ago that this was not really an option that was going to work out. And so, you know, th- these big events that are happening around us now, they're only, they're kind of triggering these major shifts in thinking that we, we need to adopt. Hanan Ashrawi resigning is, is a big indication that the center is no longer holding and that the Palestinian Authority needs to start to listen to the, the will of the people and that we do need reform within our political structures and we do need reform uh, within our leadership. And, and the international, the most important thing to hear, and I, I'd be remiss not, not to mention it, is that the international community needs to start listening to Palestinian civil society and to the voices of the Palestinians because what legitimacy does the PA and the PLO have today. We haven't held elections. They haven't had proper elections for decades. The Palestinian Authority is there to dispense aid that's coming in from overseas, but it is not in, it's not governing. The ministries, they're all shambles. We are people under occupation. And so we cannot continue to pretend that there is a state and that we have a president and that we have ministries. We have nothing for as long as we, we are under Israeli occupation. So the international com- community needs to start listening to the voices of the Palestinian people. The amazing Dr. Sameh Sabawi setting the record straight there and speaking to the legacy of Hanan Ashrawi. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, share the podcast. And remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.